0: It's a fruitless endeavor to tell Lachlan to shush. I, I I know that it's it's you might as well just spit directly into the wind because you can tell him to shush all day long and it, it doesn't do any good. First Samuel chapter 12 is where we'll is where we will be this morning. <clears throat> you know, we're gonna be looking at the amazingness of God's grace. And and if if God's grace is anything, it is amazing. And as we contemplate God's grace, I think we we begin to, to look at the very the very tip of the iceberg whenever we talk about the amazingness of God's grace, because we are understanding the grace of God in our finite human understanding, we don't know what God knows, we don't see what God sees, we don't have the mind of God, and in our limited and, and, and finite understanding, we understand that God is a gracious God, and that He is loving, and He is kind, and He is benevolent, but that is only a fraction of of the grace that we can understand. Uh, and so as we talk about the amazing grace of God, I want to point out something very, very uh very, very simple. And I want you, as we talk about the amazingness of God's grace, I want you to keep this in the back of your mind as we look at this. In the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul says, he, he, he makes this statement in Romans chapter 6. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says, may it never be. How shall you who have died to sin continue to live any longer in it? Now, I want to preface this saying with Paul gives a disclaimer to the grace of God. He says that the grace of God is so amazing, it has the potential to be abused. And so Paul gives a disclaimer about the amazingness of God's grace. He says, God's grace is so amazing... We could continue in sin and do whatever we want and live in in seeking to please our flesh and and seeking to please ourselves. And we can continue in sin, continue to live in sin so that God's grace could just continue to abound because that's how amazing God's grace is. But Paul warns us, he says, do not abuse the grace of God. Even though it is so amazing and has the potential to be abused, How how shall you who have died to sin Continue to live any longer in it. And so Paul warns us not to abuse the grace of God, but he tells us that God's grace is so amazing it has the potential for abuse. No. Keep that in the back of your mind as we talk about God's amazing grace in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to read this whole passage, so I'm just going to ask you to stay with me. We're going to read all the way through uh, verses 1 through 25. Then Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice, and all that you said to me, I have appointed a king over you. Now here is the king walking before you, but I am old and gray. Behold, my sons are with you, and I have walked before you from my youth even to this day. Here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord, his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, or whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded, or whom have I oppressed, or... From whose hand have I taken a bribe to my blind eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is his witness against you. And his anointed is a witness to this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went to Egypt, your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he said to them, The hand of Sisera, the captain of the army of Hazor, and to the hand of the Philistines, and to the hand of the king of Moab, they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord, And they said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, But now deliver us from the hand of our enemies that we may serve thee. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Badan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. And when then when you saw Nahash from the king of the sons of Ammon came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Now therefore, here is the king whom you have chosen, whom you have asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both of you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. And if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Even now, take your stand. And see this great thing which the Lord has done before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you will know and see your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and and Samuel. then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servant to the Lord your God, So that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sin this evil by asking for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not fear. You have committed all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with your heart. And you must not turn aside, from then you would go after futile things, which cannot profit and deliver, because they are futile. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, but I will instruct you in this good and right way. Only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, both you and your king shall be swept away. Let's pray. God, as we see this passage, Lord, may we see your amazing grace. May we see that you deal with us not according to our trespasses, but you deal with us according to your character and your compassion and your mercy. Well, we thank you that we see the embodiment of your grace in the person of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray that as you leave here today, that you will know of God's grace. That you will know God's grace in a very personal and experiential way. You know, we've, we've all seen pictures of, of poverty. We've seen the slums in India. We've seen uh, the, the jungles of Africa. We've seen the jungles in South America. We've seen poverty. But it is not until you experience poverty that you really grasp what it is to be poor. And I believe that grace is much the same way. We can talk about grace. We can, we can read stories about grace. We can, we can hear testimony after testimony. But until we come to an experiential understanding of grace, I don't believe that we truly know grace. Well, I want to remind us of where we are in our story. Uh, last week, we looked at the deliverance of the Israelites uh, by, by the hand of God. Uh, by the armies of Saul remember we had uh, this king Nahash that came in and he was he was oppressing the people of Israel and they 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 saw this this Ammonite king coming toward them and they said what are we going to do this guy is big and strong he's got this army he's going to destroy us and and they said we they before the army could even get there they ran out to meet him and they said look we give up we wave the white flag we'll be your servants and he said, the only way I'll allow you to be my servants is if you allow me to gouge out the right eye of every man, because uh, he was, I mean, after all, he was a reasonable king, right? So he said, he said, I'll gouge out the right eye, and then everyone can be my servant. And they said, well, well, well we didn't really you know, like those terms, so why don't you give us a few days to think about it, and we'll, we'll send out a, an all call to all of the tribes of Israel, see if anybody will come help us. And King Nahash was so arrogant and so prideful, he said, call whoever you want. So they, they send out a call, and the call came to Saul, the king of Israel, in the place of Gibeah. And Saul cuts up the ox, and he sends it out. And then Saul brings his army. And God, the, the Scripture says, the Spirit of God came upon Saul, and he was able to defeat Nahash and all of the armies. And then this is Samuel's response after Saul has delivered Israel from the, Ammonite, uh, from, from the Ammonite oppression. Samuel begins, and he reminds Israel of his faithfulness to give credibility to what he was about to say. He says, okay, Israel, have I ever lied to you? Have I ever done anything to, to discredit my witness? Have I ever stolen from you? Have I ever defrauded from you? Have I ever told you any half-truth? Have I ever done anything but declare to you, thus saith the Lord? And they looked at Samuel and they said, no. They said, nothing that you have ever told us has ever challenged or has ever been been anything but credible and honest and right. You have been a prophet that speaks on behalf of the Lord. And so Samuel says, okay, by your own words you've said that, that I am a good prophet and have said, thus saith the Lord. Now, listen to what I'm about to say. Not only does Samuel remind Israel of his faithfulness, but in what he is about to say, he reminds Israel of God's faithfulness. Why? Why does Samuel remind Israel over and over again of God's faithfulness? The same reason that every prophet up until this point and every prophet from this point will continue to remind Israel of God's faithfulness because Israel is forgetful. And the enemy of faith is forgetfulness. And I want us to see this, church. Every time God introduces himself in the Old Testament, he does so in light of his past providences. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. I'm the God who delivered you out of Egypt. I'm the God who was with you in the wilderness. I'm the God who delivered you from the hand of the Philistines. I'm the God who... Provided for you. I am the God who delivered you. I am the God who will be with you. He always introduces himself in light of what he has done previously. Why? Because Israel is just like us and we forget. We forget. Not only do we forget what we had for breakfast, not only do we forget what day of the week it is, but we forget what God has brought us through. We forget. We forget that just a year ago, we were we were gutting our own homes. We see the pictures on the news and we say, Oh, poor Houston. Oh, poor Beaumont. And we forget what God brought us through. And we say, We'll pray for you. Not only does Samuel remind Israel, of, Israel's faith, of, of Samuel's faithfulness, but he reminded Israel of God's faithfulness. We need to be reminded of God's goodness because we forget. I want you to look down into the text. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 9. As Samuel is reminding Israel of past generations, look at what he says in verse 9. It says, But they forgot the Lord their God, and therefore God sold them into the hand of, the, of Sisera. This is the generation right after Joshua. Okay, so so stay with me. We're going to back up just a little bit in in Israel's history. God brings, brings Israel out of Egypt. Through the hand of Moses, he delivers Israel. He sends ten plagues upon Egypt. He sends the death angel upon Egypt. He kills all of the firstborn in Egypt. Moses then takes Israel out of Egypt. The whole book of Exodus is about the Exodus as Israel Israel exits the bondage in Egypt. God delivers Israel out of the hand of the Egyptians. They cross the Red Sea as as Pharaoh's army is pursuing them. God destroys the army of Pharaoh. Then they go into the wilderness and, and God says, Look, I've just brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm about to bring you into the promised land. They send a bunch of spies to go spy out the land. Ten spies of the 12 come back and they say, look, those guys have they've have giants over there. Their grapes are as big as our heads. Their, their, their armies are huge. Their chariots are huge. Their horses are huge. They're going to destroy us. And so Israel cowered in the, in the, in the wake of, of the impending battle that would be to deliver, uh, to, to enter into the promised land. And so they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And in that 40 years, an entire generation dies. Yet that generation that was there watched God provide for Israel. Watch God give them manna from heaven every day. Watch God give them water from a rock. Watch their clothes not, not wither and not fade. God saw the, uh, the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, saw the, the cloud that covered them during the day and the fire that warmed them at night. They saw the providence of God. And then God brings them into a land. And as they enter into the land, they see the hand of God as they walk around the city of Jericho and the walls come tumbling down. They see the hand of God as God makes the sun stand still long enough for them to to defeat their enemy. They see the hand of God as God sends hailstorms to destroy their enemy. They see the hand of God as they walk into the promised land and, and drive out all of the people that are in the land of Canaan. And the scripture tells us in Judges chapter 2 that as soon as that generation died, as soon as that generation died, Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says, there arose another generation after Joshua. And it says that generation did not know the Lord, nor did they honor the Lord. But they turned aside. That's what Samuel says. They forgot. They forgot what God had done in Jericho. They forgot what God had done in the wilderness. They forgot what God had done in Egypt. They forgot what God had done through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They forgot what God did through Joseph. They forgot. The enemy of faith, church, is forgetfulness we forget. Why? Because we're people. Because today's crisis is so much more difficult than anything that we've ever experienced. You ever notice that? Whatever crisis we're going through today is so much more difficult than anything we've ever gone gone through before. We think that, that our crisis that our obstacle is so much greater than anything that God has ever done or will ever do, and that, and that there's no way that they, God could do this. That's where Israel was. Look at the text. It says in verse 9, but they forgot the Lord. And Samuel says, do you remember what God did then? He raised up judge after judge after judge, and he delivered you. And then you would forget the Lord and you would serve the Baals and the Ashtoreth and God would raise up a judge and you'd forget the Lord and he would raise up a judge. And this pattern was over and over and over again. But look at verse 12. He says, you saw God's faithfulness in verse 12, but when you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon came against you, you said, no, God, you can't deliver us. We need a king. How similar do we respond to the people like the people of Israel? God has delivered us and been faithful to us over and over and over and over again. And yet, whenever the next crisis comes, we say, oh, but this is too difficult for you, God. I know you spoke the world into existence. I know that... that you caused the Red Sea to part. I know that, that you destroyed entire cities with, the, with, with, with your word. I know that you flooded the entire earth. I know that you have delivered. I know that you have caused dead men to walk, but you can't help me with my next mortgage payment. That's how we think. Now, we may not admit that, but that's how we behave, and so we know that that's how we think. We say, God, I know cognitively that you have done this, but you can't help me with my conflict with my coworker. Oh, I know that you caused the wind and the sea to be still, but you can't help me with my child's illness. You can't help me with my kid's learning disability. That's too difficult for you. You can't help me with this addiction. You can't help me with, with the brokenness in my family. Why do we think that this crisis is unmanageable, is too big? God can part the seed, but he can't fix our difficulties in our life. It's interesting, as Samuel points out Israel's failure, he knows that he's talking to, to people who are unwilling to listen. You ever had a conversation with, uh, with a toddler? You ever tried to explain something to, to a two- or three-year-old? say, there are no monsters under your bed. Monsters don't exist. We had, whenever Nicholas was little, uh, my father-in-law decided that a good show to, to, to watch with your, with your four-year-old would be Gremlins. And so, and so my father-in-law sits right down with him. He says, every kid needs to watch Gremlins. And so he sits down with Nicholas, and, and they watch Gremlins, and, and we go to pick Nicholas up, and we go, we, we go home, and we tuck him in his bed, and we say our prayers with him. And then about five minutes later, Nicholas is in our bedroom. We say, well, Nicholas, what's wrong? And tears are streaming down his face, and he says, I'm scared. And it just breaks your little heart. And we say, well, what are you scared of, Nicholas says I'm scared of the gremlins. Thanks, Paul. And so, so for the next year, year and a half, Nicholas is scared of the gremlins. And you can have a logical, rational conversation with Nicholas. You sit down and you say, "Nick, is there any such thing as gremlins?" No. Is the window locked? Yes. Is the alarm set? Yes. If the window opens, will the alarm go off? Yes. So there's no such thing as gremlins. Right. So the gremlins cannot get in our window. And if they do, even though there's no such thing as gremlins, if they do, the alarm's going to go off and mom and dad will run in here. Right. Okay, so we can go to bed in our own bed and we can be a big boy. Dad, I'm scared of the gremlins. It's not logical. It's not rational. That's where Samuel was. He was having a logical, rational conversation with Israel, yet he knew that they were incapable of of grasping this logical, rational thought that that he was laying out. He says, God has been with you. He's delivered you over and over and over and over again, and he's going to continue to deliver, yet you're going to cry out and say, we need a king. But the gremlins are going to come. That's where Israel was. And I want you to notice what God does in his what his communication techniques are he doesn't give israel time to butt in samuel is 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 giving them the response god's faithfulness god's faithfulness in spite of your unfaithfulness god has been faithful yet you have cried out to him yet you have served the baals and the astral yet you have you have played the rebel you have played the harlot you have gone after these foreign gods and now even after god has delivered you after after all of your idolatry you have said give us a king because god is clearly not not good enough and not big enough to deliver us from from this next crisis and then before israel can even response samuel says i am going to cause today on the day of the wheat harvest i'm going to cause a rainstorm to come now for us we think okay it's a storm but I want us to understand what this would have meant for the people of Israel. This would have been akin to a snowstorm in the middle of July in South Louisiana. During the wheat harvest in Israel, remember this is the Middle East. This is, there are, there are seasons where it rains and seasons where it doesn't. During the wheat harvest, there would be three to four months where it would not rain at all. And the wheat wheat would would begin to dry out as the head of the grain would dry. It would become harvestable. uh, uh, And as it became harvestable, they could grind it into flour and they could make bread. This was their staple produce. This was what they lived on. And just before the harvest, on the day of the harvest, God said, to show you that I am in control, to show you that I mean business, I'm going to send a rainstorm. I'm going to send snow in July so that I get your attention. And look at what the text says. Look at what the text says, verse 17. Is this not the wheat harvest? I will call the Lord, call to the Lord, and he may send thunder and rain, and then you will know and see your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord your God for asking for a king. So Samuel called to the Lord that day. Look at the end of verse 18. And the people feared the Lord greatly. Fear is not a bad thing. In fact, it's the hymn writer who says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and fear my soul relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.'" God sent this storm to let Israel know what their sin and rebellion meant to him as you have gone after these foreign gods as you have repeatedly forgotten my faithfulness forgotten my goodness forgotten my deliverance it grieves me and it angers me god is a jealous god a holy god a righteous god and while these are his people it it grieved him and it angered him and god is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and judgment is his strange work, but he will not continue to endure a people who give themselves to foreign gods. And God communicates that to Israel. He said, if you continue to go after these foreign gods, if you continue to to seek after futile things that do not satisfy, I am going to give you over to your enemies. And I'm serious about this thing called idolatry. Now I want to point out, that it would take generation after generation after generation of God warning Israel, warning Israel, and it wasn't until the exile, wasn't until the Babylonians that God fixed the problem of idolatry with the people of Israel. It would be hundreds and hundreds of years, generation after generation after generation of them giving themselves to foreign gods. We like to... We like to think that we've got it figured out a whole lot better than the people of Israel. But if we're honest, this pattern is eerily familiar, isn't it? It's eerily familiar. How many times have we slipped back into the same pattern of sin, the same pattern of disobedience in our own lives? He who knows the good he ought to do and doeth it not to him it is sin. Proverbs says it like this, verse 26, verse 11. He says, as a fool returns to his folly, it's like a dog that returns to his vomit. And that paints a, a, a very gruesome picture. As a dog returns to his vomit, so is a fool who returns to his folly. But is that not what Israel was doing? Is that not what we do? Now, we know what's right. We know what's wrong. We know it's not about knowing. G.I. Joe said knowing's half the battle. It may be half the battle, but it ain't the whole battle. Because he who knows the good he ought to do, and doeth it not to him it is sin. It's not about knowing what's right. It's not about being educated. The scripture says that the heart is increasingly deceitful, that the heart is desperately wicked. And who can know it? My problem's not my brain. My problem is about 18 inches south of my brain, my heart. And there is sin, and there is this, this, this de- innate depravity. Whenever my little girl was, was little, one of the most beautiful sounds is when, when she learns to, to sing, and one of the first songs we taught her was Amazing Grace. And whenever that, that two-year-old, three-year-old is singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, At two and three years old, I want them to understand that they are sinners, that they are in need of grace. But I want us to go back to the text, and I want us to see something that is so powerful in the text. Look at Samuel chapter 12. As they were fearful, as they were cowering before God because he made it snow in the middle of July, he made it rain in the dry season. As they were cowering before God, Listen to Samuel's response. Verse 20, he says, do not fear. You have committed evil, yet don't turn aside. Verse 22, he says, for the Lord will not abandon his people. I want us to hear God's response. God's response is, yes, you deserve death. Yes, you deserve to be wiped off the face of the planet." Yes, you are repeatedly sinful. Yes, you continue to disobey. Yes, you continue to go after your same faults and your same sins. Yet, I will not abandon my people. I don't know about you, but it would be easy for me to dwell upon my mistakes and wallow in shame and guilt and slip into a depression and 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 just just wallow out. God, how how could you how could you love me? How could you say so I'm not worthy of your sin? You know, maybe I'm not even a Christian if I continue to do the same things that, that I've always done, and there, there there seems to be no 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 change in my life. And am I even a believer? And and has anybody ever struggled with these thoughts? I know I have. And when we dwell upon our sin and our failures, we're missing. Where does Samuel point Israel? He points them to God's amazing grace. He says, yet in your evil, in your increased wickedness, in your pattern of rebellion, God will not abandon you. Church, hear this. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul is outlining the reality and the the, the theology of the gospel, of the grace of God. In chapter 20, he says, and the law came that transgression might increase. Listen to this last line. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Remember where I started? God's grace is so amazing and has the potential to be abused. When sin increases, what increases even more? Grace, because grace is so amazing and has the potential to be abused. When we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, when we commit murder, adultery. Regardless of what our sin is, God's grace is greater. God's grace is greater still. God's grace is so amazing. But I want us to understand that God's grace not only saves us and makes us his people, but this is what I want us to understand. That's easy for us to cognitively grasp that it is by grace we receive salvation. But this is what I want us to get today, church. Not only does God's grace make us his people, not only does God's grace save us, not only is it God's grace, the the mechanism of our salvation, but it is God's grace that keeps us his people. That was the message to Israel, that you are his people by grace, that you didn't do anything to become the people of Israel. All you did was be who you are. And God, by his great grace and by his sovereign pleasure, called Abraham and changed his name from Abram to Abraham and gave him a son, Isaac, and gave him a son, Jacob, and gave him 12 sons and became the 12 tribes of Israel. And all you did was forsaken. And yet he made you his people. By grace, you have become his people. But this is what I want us to understand. Not only by grace did you become his people, but it is by grace that you have remained his people. You don't deserve to be His people. You haven't done anything but commit idolatry after idolatry after idolatry, and yet His grace has kept you His people. Church, God's grace made you His, and God's grace keeps you His. When we lie, when we cheat, when we continue to return to our vomit, we continue to return folly after folly, mistake after mistake, it is God's grace that keeps us His people and the only thing that keeps us from wallowing in despair is to focus on god's grace at the cross at the cross where i first saw the light and the burden of my sin rolled away it was there by faith i received my sight and now i'm happy all the day but if i think about what it was that 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 brought me to the place where i needed salvation It's easy for me to wallow in despair. It's easy for me to say, how could God love me? I don't deserve grace. You're exactly right. That's why they call it grace. But let us focus upon the grace of God. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, he reminds Israel, verse 22, the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. It's not us, church. It's His grace. It's His character. It's His name. 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, one of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. It's His grace that makes us His, and it's His grace that keeps us. This morning, you may be his child. You may be born again, but the enemy has been beating you up day in and day out because you fail, because you make mistakes, because you slip into the same pattern of sin over and over again. And the enemy lies to you. And he says, if you were a believer, you wouldn't do this. If you were a believer, you wouldn't make the same mistake. And God's word says, you're mine. And I'm going to make you mine, and I'm going to keep you mine by my grace. Maybe you're here this morning, and you have the idea that I've got to get my life straight. I've got to get my life cleaned up before I can come to God. I've got to quit doing this or quit doing that or start doing this or start doing that. The message of the gospel is not that you need to fix your life to come to Jesus, but you need to come to Jesus that He can fix your life. This morning, may we understand God's grace in an experiential way. Let's pray. God, we thank You that Your grace makes us and Your grace keeps us. There are those here this morning who need to be kept by Your grace. They've experienced weight of the world, as the world kicks them in the teeth, they feel defeated, they feel beaten, bloodied, and bruised, and your word here this morning tells them that your grace not only makes them your people, but keeps them. Maybe this morning you need to grab someone and come to this altar and thank God for his grace. Maybe you're staring down an invasion by King Nahash, and this crisis that you're in today is bigger than anything that you've ever been through before. May God remind you I delivered Israel. i deliver you. Maybe this morning you need to experience God's grace for the first time. In this hymn of invitation, may you be obedient to what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. May today we understand and experience the grace of God.